Could a person be at higher risk of cancer from eating meat? Well, back 111 years ago, the New York Times ran a story that said exactly that. And now, more than a century later, the World Health Organization has said, yes, decades and decades of research have shown that meat eaters are at much higher risk of developing cancer. And in today's program, we're going to zero in on what kinds of cancer, how does all of this happen, And how do I get started about changing that? And we are going to be joined by our own Lee Crosby, a registered dietitian, who will tell you about her own battle and what that did in her life. And now let me turn it over to weight loss champion Chuck Carroll. You are listening to The Exam Room, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Thank you, Dr. Barnard. My name is Chuck Carroll. I am the weight loss champion on the tweeters, at Chuck Carroll, WLC. That's two R's and two L's. My guest apparently likes that. Dietitian Lee Crosby, she works upstairs at the Barnard Medical Center. How are you, Lee? I'm doing well. How are you, Chuck? I'm doing just fine. Have you tweeted today? You've been on the tweeters? I think I, I, think I retweeted today. Mm. Maybe not. No? I was on Twitter. There you go. That has to count for something. That, absolutely, that counts. <laughs> Get your follows up. There you go. Anyway, uh, on a more serious note, uh, this episode is called The Meat Cancer Connection. And, Lee, the reason that I wanted to bring you back onto the show for this is because this is one that is very near and dear to your heart. It is, yeah. So, you want me to go ahead and... By all means. Yeah. So, I, I do have some... I have a story here that goes with this. So, in terms of... What happened to me? But back in 2010, it was late 2010. Um, I was actually having some pretty severe breast pain in my right breast. So I think, like any woman would, I got pretty worried. Uh, went to my doctor, and she suggested, you know, she did a manual exam, didn't find anything shady, but decided to go ahead and send me for a mammogram just out of an abundance of caution. I should put a caveat here that I was the ripe old age of 30 when this was happening. Mm-hmm. So I was pretty concerned. Um, so the results came back, and what they found were some sort of suspicious spots. They were calcifications, and we decided to go ahead and biopsy them. And those, by the way, were actually in the left breast. So surprise! Yeah, not what I was expecting. Right. Um, so they ended up being something called benign hyperplasia, which basically means not cancer, but your cells are growing more than they should. And it does mean you have an increased risk down the road. Still alarming. Yeah, yeah. So... I went ahead and got a, a breast surgeon because my family doctor was more than happy to pass the baton on that one and got a full workup. And she actually found a thickened spot in the right breast that nothing had shown up on the mammogram, but it was about the size of a quarter. And so since I had just had a biopsy and I was not looking to get, you know, another hole, no more, no more cutting, just I was over it. <clears throat> she offered the alternative of watching and waiting and checking every three months to see if anything had changed. So I thought, okay, I can do that, but I'm not just going to watch and wait because that's not who I am. I want to do anything I can because, again, I was only 30, anything I could do to reduce my risk. So I did some reading. Um, I actually read The China Study by Dr. Campbell, um, a couple of other books, things that I had kind of actually thought, particularly in terms of The China Study, I had thought that was just... I don't know, maybe hot air. I'd never read it. When I actually sat down and read it and saw that it was based on, you know, peer-reviewed, published research, I actually went to the National Institutes of Health, the National Library of Medicine, so I could pull the full studies and read the papers to see for myself that this was true, that there was a connection between animal protein and cancer, and lo and behold, there is. Yeah. So I went and transitioned onto a plant-based diet, and first three months went back for my checkup. Everything was the same. That spot was totally stable. Second three months, everything was the same. Third three months, everything was the same. <clears throat> and about that point in time, I had actually, it's a long story. I sort of fell off the wagon. Oh. Um, I, I had taken Cipro a few months prior, which I probably actually shouldn't have even taken, but it had um, made my gut function a little bit special. And so it was sort of a misguided attempt to try and fix that. I reintroduced meat. I went on a really intense sort of elimination diet. But again, the mistake there was reintroducing meat while I did that. Right. Didn't know it was a mistake at the time. Um, So I went for my final check with her thinking, you know, this is going to be nothing. It's been stable for, you know, nine months straight. I should be, you know, I should be graduated. Like I'm done. But I hadn't anticipated that 
the diet change would make a difference. So I was actually four months, not three months, because I was running a little behind. And when I went back in for that final check, thinking I was just going to get a clean bill of health, that spot, <clears throat> which had been totally stable on a plant-based diet, I mean, totally stable, had doubled in size. Mm. So again, in just four months, doubled in size, terrifying. So I was back on the surgical table, you know, within a week, I think, super frightened, um, had a lumpectomy, had a big old chunk of my, my flesh cut out. It was not, not a pleasant experience. Um, and it was sent to the pathologist and the results came back atypical. Now, I was really happy that it wasn't cancer, but I don't know if you know that much about atypia. Have you heard the term? Uh, I, I know that uh, somebody close to me had um, a little scare, so I know a little bit. I'm I'm certainly not an expert, but I know it's uh, it's enough to, uh, yeah, yeah, long nights. Yeah, exactly. It's not something you want to hear in reference to your own cells. So luckily with the lumpectomy, they'd gotten everything and it had clean margins. But the fact that I was sprouting atypical cells, again, I think I was 31 at this point. And the fact that just going from a plant-based diet back to sort of a meaty diet, and I hadn't been exercising as much, but the biggest change was bringing animal protein back in and animal fat. And to have it double in size and come back atypical, I was done. Because again, atypical is basically one step right before cancer. Mm. And the kind of atypia I had was one step right before they start treating you with tamoxifen and estrogen blockers. So I decided I was going to go right back to the plant-based diet. And I did um, lower fat content. And I have been there happily ever since. And that was about five years ago. And so far, so good. Knock on wood. I've had clean reports every year when I go back. so speaking of going back, let's let's dial this back. It sounds to me like you did a lot of this research on your own. How much did your doctor try to school you on nutrition? Not at all. Not surprised, unfortunately. Not at all. Yeah. And it's not that she isn't interested. That's just, you know, she's a surgeon. That's what she does. And she's and she certainly did say things like avoid alcohol, which is, a, again, a well-known risk factor. Um, or minimize it, and to stay active. But that was really that was really it, and eat you know a quote unquote healthy balanced diet. Well, what does that mean? In this case, I actually was eating a pretty healthy balanced diet. It just was fairly heavy on animal protein and animal fat. Mm-hmm. But I was still eating fruits and vegetables. I was doing that stuff. So for me, the real key here was was meat. So you've obviously you know turned that corner. Have you had an opportunity to speak with the surgeon and kind of talk about? going plant-based and the benefits that you found in that now? Yeah. So I check in with her every year and she knows that I'm plant-based and she's delighted with the outcomes and she, I'm sure, would be more than happy to have, you know, more of that information in her practice. Yeah. She's been very receptive. So early 30s, 30, 31, was there a history of breast cancer in your family? No history of breast cancer in my family. So this just really out of left field just blindsided you. Yeah. I mean, in hindsight, I, I figured I had, I learned as through the course of my research that I had some risk factors I didn't know that I had, one of which we'll talk about more, but was eating a lot of red meat during my preteen and teenage years. Mm. Um, it, there, you know, there are reasons, but it was, it was, yeah, no family history. So you come through the other side and I mean, you're sitting here, you're a dietitian now, so <laughs> you, you must have had this epiphany, like this is what I need to be doing with my life. I did. And I turned to nutrition first because I had a background in nutrition, but I certainly hadn't, you know, done the whole dietitian thing. And having had this experience was what made me go back to school, take those courses, go through the internship and become a dietitian, knowing that this kind of nutrition was this powerful. This isn't something you get in a standard nutrition curriculum. So I'm really glad that I encountered it for myself. I could have done without the actual situation, but I'm really glad I found this information. Absolutely. You know, it's funny, you know. I, I'm in school myself now, mm-hmm. trying to trying to get that. Oh, bless your heart! Fancy acronyms <laughs> after my name. Um, <clears throat> letters. And one of the courses that I took this past semester was uh, nutrition for athletes, essentially. Wow, and nice. They were just super big on meat and oh. dairy, and I'm like reading this, and I'm like, why is this part <gasps> of the curriculum? I, I don't. I, know. I don't understand why this is possibly part of the curriculum. They. They view it, the professor does, nutrition in a box. They just regurgitate what they have been told. And so I wish I had the textbook with me. Like, you and I could go through and be like, nope, 
Nope. Oh, nope. And just I cross it all out. I did lots of that in my standard nutrition textbooks. And luckily I had some friends who were vegan and vegetarian and they would listen to my little rants and things. I would literally text pictures out of the textbook where I had done strike throughs and been like, oh, inaccurate exclamation point. Right. So, yeah, it's pretty frustrating. It is. And and I don't know if this was a similar experience for you, like that little chapter on veget- uh, vegetarians <gasps> and vegans. I mean, it was so short tiny, compared tiny. to everything. I remember in one particular <laughs> chapter, we got a paragraph, a paragraph. You know, just said, I have literally had the a paragraph experience. Yeah. And, and you're just like, and? The heart disease chapter. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. They talk about all these things and interventions that can lower cholesterol by five whole points. And I'm sitting here like, clinically, it's better than nothing, but it's not really clinically going to make a difference to lower your cholesterol by five points. And then there was one paragraph that said a low-fat vegetarian or vegan diet may be helpful in reversing heart disease. I'm like, why is that one paragraph when we're spending pages on reducing cholesterol by five points? Talk about burying the lead. <laughs> and just Big time. dive into my news Big vernacular time. there. It's just, it's unreal to me. So it really is. You have this experience, you have this awakening, you go and uh, you get this nutrition degree. And, and so this is just kind of your course in life now, huh? It is. And, you know, I've also, I sort of researched the heck out of things when I'm, if I'm nervous about something like, you know, having an increased risk of breast cancer, my answer, my way to deal with it is to be proactive and learn as much as I can. And so I've definitely done that on this topic and some of these sort of nutrition-related topics. Also, I just nerd out about nutrition. Nerd out, man. That's what this podcast <laughs> is all about. <laughs> Truth. Your your, uh, your patients, do some of them come in? Maybe they've had some similar scares and, and you've had the opportunity to talk to them a little bit? Not as much, although I do mention it for women, again, because I think people just don't think about nutrition in terms of, in terms of breast health. Mm-hmm. But even in terms of breast pain, keeping the, the animal products out of the diet and keeping the fat low it really helps with breast pain. I know that, for instance, participants in our studies will, you know, sometimes they'll say like, oh, yeah, this is this is much better. Let's uh, get into the science of things. And um, I know that uh, you nerd out. You do a lot of research. That's why I love having you on the program. Hold on. Let me just hold this up for the camera. She brought. <laughs> oh, no, no. I'm not gonna, one. He's outing my nerdiness. Not two. There's uh, really good data on this. Three, four pages. <laughs> Four full pages now, of notes. Come on, I it's, love it. It's good information. It is. It's I may all have gone a little overboard. No, I'm really looking forward to sharing this. All and right, it's, we're going to put all of this up on pcrm.org/podcast oh, as well. Uh, this text, courtesy of Lee Crosby. Uh, so, Miss Veggie Quest. Yes. Uh, if a woman eats meat every day, I mean, just a hardcore carnivore. Right. Like, how much does that increase the risk of developing uh, breast cancer? All right. So first off, we know that eating animal protein generally increases levels of something called insulin-like growth factor 1, or IGF-1, and that is linked to increased breast cancer risk. So that's sort of on the side. But red meat, in terms of breast cancer, is actually especially toxic. Um, Perhaps my favorite study on this subject was the Nurses' Health Study. They followed 88,000 women about 20 years, over a 20-year period. And what they found was that there was a, I want to make sure I get the number right, a 13% higher risk of of developing breast cancer for every serving of red meat per day that women ate. So each additional serving, 13% increase in risk. And they controlled for lots of things. So when you see that dose-response relationship, it's concerning. And you think, well, hey, who's eating more than one serving of red meat a day? Well, one serving of red meat, it's like the size of a deck of cards. That's really small. It's like four ounces or something. Yeah, right? I think, it, yeah, no, three ounces, three Jeez, ounces. Right? So it's not even, you know, a quarter pounder, you're already way over the over the limit. So, again, if someone's eating sausage at breakfast and they eat maybe a ham sandwich or a burger for dinner, you've already, you know, three servings plus right there. All right, 13 yeah. times. 13%, not times. Uh. <laughs> it's not that huge of a difference. But, again, the fact that... When you stair-step up the servings of meat, you stair-step up the risk, even controlling for lots of other things. So, all right. It's so concerning. 13 times I misspoke, but 13% and then you eat it three times a day. What, that's 30, it, it's, 39? Yeah. yeah, you're 39% at that point. Insane. Yeah, so it's pretty insane. And, again, what's even worse, meat's never good for you. It's really, really dangerous for preteens and teens. It breaks my heart every time I see, you know, a a young teenage girl eating a burger, I kind of, I don't, <laughs> but I kind of want to go just take it out of her hands, put it in the trash can. Um, 
because again, this is this risk is even worse when girls are preteens and teens because their breast tissue is developing, and it's more those the tissue is more sensitive to carcinogens at that point in time. Mm. So again, red meat's never good. Please don't feed your daughter's meat. Just just move it off the plate. That would make me a very happy woman. Red meat, white meat. There, you you. No, there, so there are there's carcinogens in 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 cooked chicken, cooked fish, particularly at high temperatures. We can absolutely get into that. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, you're just talking about when the woman eats meat. Uh, that's I had no idea. I guess that makes sense. Doctor Barnard and I have talked about how the hormones in the dairy are just horrible for um, developing girls as as well. Oh, it really. And again, in countries where they don't where they don't drink much dairy and they drink, you know, soy milk or eat soy products instead, much lower rates of breast cancer. And again, that's even family history, 5 to 10% of cases of breast cancer are related to sort of those inherited gene issues. Mm-hmm. But yet we know conservatively that a third of breast cancer cases are related to lifestyle. That's a, you know, that's a lot of control that women have. It's not, again, nothing, no one's to blame for breast cancer. You, there's no guarantee about preventing it, but you can do a lot of things to reduce your risk or reduce the risk of recurrence if you've had it. Uh, the other lifestyle factors, I know you were just talking about alcohol. What are some other things? So alcohol is a biggie. Um, smoking is a biggie. Staying active, that's a big one. And if you you know get pregnant, breastfeeding after pregnancy, all of those are things um, that can decrease the risk of breast cancer, especially alcohol. Sorry, ladies, with the, with your glass of wine, but even one glass a day increases risk. Yeah, and you know, people think oh, a glass of red wine a day is healthy. It depends on what what health benefit you're going for. I right? Suppose. Yeah. If breast cancer is your issue, then it's not. Uh, what about you? Would think though. If meat is bad, then you look at Eastern diets like Japan, where right. they eat less meat. And well, more, where they did, yeah. Right. More <laughs> rice, more vegetables. They would have a lower risk of, of cancer or a lower rate of, of cancer. Oh, yeah. There. And they do. I mean, significantly lower. So back in the 1940s, in particular, when some of this research started, um, the Japanese diet, again, was very high in carbohydrate relative to American standards. It was about 80% carbs, uh, about a little more than 10% protein, which is about what you get in whole plant foods, sidebar, and then only 7% of calories from fat, and very, very little of that was from animal fat. And breast cancer rates were a fraction of what they were in the United States then and now. I mean, just much, much lower. So again, the traditional Japanese diet, which we're, again, we're basing, that's based on rice or sweet potatoes in the case of Okinawa. It was a very carbohydrate-centric diet, very, very little animal protein or meat. Uh, Got a handful of blue zones over in Japan as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. So Okinawa is one of the blue zones. And again, their diet was traditionally, it's changing because we're bringing in our Western foods, but traditionally was based on sweet potatoes, actually. Yeah. So let's talk about that shift, because as these fast food restaurants that originated here uh, have moved over into other markets, I would expect then that we're starting to see a higher rate more prevalence of cancer. Yeah, so sadly that is the case because, I mean, it's tempting to think that, wow, maybe, you know, maybe Japanese women just have amazing breast cancer fighting genes and that's why they don't get it. And it turns out that no, when, so I think these studies actually started back in the 50s when women moved from Japan to Hawaii and they adopted the more, um, the standard American diet or the sad diet when they went to Hawaii, their first generation out breast cancer risk was increased by three times. So not 3%. This time it is three times. And then for the next generation down who'd been exposed to that standard American diet, you know, in utero and growing up, they had five times the risk of their grandmothers of developing breast cancer. So same genes, new environment, you get a huge increase in risk in breast cancer. So it's not the genes, it's the food. It's, let me ask you a socioeconomic question here. I Because I guess to a certain extent, uh, meat is still a luxury for some families over there um and the more money you have the more meat i'm sure that you're able to afford so is there any sort of correlation between affluent families and the rate of cancer versus families that are struggling a little bit more to get by and would have to rely more on rice and vegetables yeah there is so typically having more money gives you better health outcomes in this case having more money means eating more meat so there was a study done in japan where women who are wealthy and ate meat daily when they were compared to women who were, you know, lower income and ate little or no meat. The wealthy women actually had, I believe it was 
eight and a half times higher risk of breast cancer. So again, normally you have better health care when you get wealthier, but in this case, because and they controlled for a lot of things. So here it really does look like the meat was the deciding factor in that. Let's uh, get scientific here for a second. Uh, we talked a little bit about the carcinogens, and we touched briefly on the animal proteins, but let's dive a little bit deeper into that IGF-1. Right, I know. So again, that's it's a, it's a growth factor, hence the GF part. And eating animal protein as opposed to plant protein is very much linked to higher levels of this growth factor in women. Um, and on the flip side, women who follow a vegan diet have 13% lower levels on average. Again, this is just one study, um, levels of IGF-1 in their blood. So that's already going to um, be protective. And again, the science shows this. I actually found a meta-analysis of 17 different studies that followed women over time. And they found that IGF-1 levels were directly linked to increased breast cancer risk. Mm. So regardless of age of the woman. So not something you really want to have high. And for men listening out there in podcast land... The same thing holds true for prostate cancer. Higher IGF-1 levels are linked to higher rates of prostate cancer. Yeah, we're going to have Dr. Niebuhr on in uh, just a little while. We're going to talk about Excellent. men, men <laughs> meet cancer Men will have their day. God, yeah, God knows that, uh, you know, and that's the thing. Like, meat is such a manly thing, you know. You kill uh, it, you grill it, and rah. Yeah, and then you suffer horrible diseases as a yeah. result. <laughs> we gotta we gotta kind of end that stigma there, right? Um, here's something that I found interesting in uh, the research that you passed along is that you know it's it's not just the the hormones or things like that. It's actually fat that's fueling estrogen production, right? And particularly saturated fat and animal fat. So it's. Well, for one thing, estrogen itself is made out of the cholesterol molecule initially. So that's just something to keep in mind. When you're eating animal products, you're definitely going to be bringing in more cholesterol. And saturated fat also leads to more of an increase in cholesterol production. So there's that. Um, but when you – there's one study that replaced animal fat and protein with vegetable fat and protein. And the estrogen decreased – again, I want to make sure I get to the right number here – in, uh, by 30% in women's blood. So, wow. And that was actually even sort of holding the fat level stable, just changing out the type of protein and fat from animal-based to plant-based, decreased estrogen levels in the blood by 30%. And that's important because estrogen exposure, both over time and at any given point in time, is linked to increased breast cancer risk. It can fuel the growth of certain breast cancers. So you want to keep estrogen levels in the normal range, but on the lower end of that. I mean, to be safe. That's a third. I mean, it doesn't eliminate it altogether, but Correct. that's a pretty significant drop there. It is. It is. Um, and so, and again, they've known this for decades, that countries with lower intakes of animal products and animal fat have lower rates of breast cancer. Like, this is not news, although to many people it will be, because this information's just not, it just doesn't get the coverage it deserves. Interesting. Uh, this Western diet leads to earlier puberty in girls, but it also delays menopause. It does, again, and that is in part due to some of the estrogen production. So meaty, high-fat Western diets are linked to girls having, you know, starting their period not at 13 or 14, but at even 9 or 10 or 11. And what that does, on the other end, the same thing happens. Menopause gets pushed off, so you have a much longer window where women are exposed to higher levels of estrogen, and that high level of estrogen is one of the things that increases risk for breast cancer. So at one point in time, they'll have a higher level of estrogen, but also there's just more time in women's lifetimes that they're exposed to estrogen. Mm. So, I mean, if you have someone who, you know, starts menstruation at 14 and hits menopause I don't know, 44 is a little early, but we'll just use it because it's a nice round number. That's 30 years of exposure. If you back that down to the age of 10 and 50, you've got, you know, 40 years. That's a big difference. Yeah, that's a so, half a lifetime. Did the math work out on that? I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. That's good. <laughs> Doing math on the spot. So we've talked about the negative. Let's let's talk about some positive things. So what, uh, what kind of foods, obviously not red meat, but like what kind of foods should we be eating then to actually lower the risk of developing Excellent. Cancer. This is one of my favorite topics because there are so many great foods out there that actually are proven to have, you know, breast protective properties. So one of my very favorite ones is soy because everyone, I don't know who, the, the soy people, they need to step up because somehow soy got this image that it could increase risk of breast cancer. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Hmm. So whole soy, not supplements, but whole soy, things like tofu and soy milk, um, anything along those lines, edamame, if you go to a sushi restaurant, those are associated with 
lower risk of developing breast cancer and for women who've already had it with a lower risk of recurrence. So I'm a huge fan of soy products. Is there any health benefit to, I know that in a lot of these fake meats, there's soy protein isolates. It's not as good as the whole soy because one of the things that's in soy that's actually helpful are the phytoestrogen. So people think, oh, they just see the estrogen at the end and they think, oh, there's estrogen in it. But the thing is that phytoestrogen is weak and it actually blocks the actual the action of real estrogen their own body makes. So you have a lower estrogen signal overall, and that's a good thing. Uh, what about uh, something else? Raw cabbage. Raw cabbage. All right. So any of the cabbage family vegetables. So that's things like cauliflower and broccoli, cabbage, bok choy, kale, collard greens. So any of those, um, they contain... I'm not even probably going to say this right, but they contain glucosinolates, and I'm sure that some listener can call in and tell me that I pronounced that incorrectly, but they help the body produce more good estrogen, which is a weaker form, and they dial back the production of the bad form of estrogen, which is, again, more more activating in terms of the physiology with breast cancer cells. So to get this benefit though you don't you either want to lightly steam or eat them raw because mm-hmm. you can basically make this compound inactive if you cook the vegetable and also you need to chew because you need to break cells apart and combine them so if you want to chew if you want to have a smoothie put some collard greens in there put a little kale in there awesome way to help protect your breasts kimchi yeah that too. Right on. Awesome. I know that you love some fiber, so I see high fiber foods on there. I do. I do love some. Okay. And that, here's why. Because fiber is very much linked with lower breast cancer risk. And um, again, any time in life, it's good. As a teen, it's even better. Because Okay. There are a couple of reasons for that. So there are two kinds of fiber. Do you know this? Yeah, soluble and insoluble. Oh, bingo. This is Who not pays your attention? first. Okay. I got it. All right. So Insoluble fiber helps keep things moving along if you catch my drift. And then soluble fiber acts like a sponge in the GI tract, and it actually soaks up excess estrogen because your body will try and get rid of excess estrogen by putting it in the bile, and that goes into your GI tract. So soluble fiber in the GI tract literally soaks up that estrogen, and the insoluble fiber helps move it on out. Uh So that's the reason I uh, love high-fiber foods. Oatmeal is a favorite because it has a great balance of soluble and insoluble fiber. Flaxseed, I know a lot of people put in their smoothies. Sweet yes. potatoes, uh, I love. They are staple at uh, at the Carroll household. Yep. Non-starchy vegetables. Yeah. So you take your pick on that one. Things like celery and cucumber, tomatoes, any of those cruciferous veggies. Um, the World Cancer Research Fund has found that they are linked to a lower risk of breast cancer, probably because they have protective phytochemicals and fiber and all kinds of good stuff in there. We're going to put your full top 10 up on pcrm.org slash podcast. There's some other good ones. Pomegranates are on there. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yep. Uh, so talk so. about, uh, you know, the best foods for lowering the risk. But some people who may be transitioning over to a plant-based diet, you know this. We've talked about this. People go on a diet. They're all concerned about what they can't eat anymore. Right. And so if you're, you know, a hardcore carnivore. Oh, boy. You know, you're going to be <laughs> We've like, all been there. you know, when, when am I going to be able to have that steak? When am I going to be able to have oh, that boy. chicken? I can't live without that. Right. But the fact of the matter right. is you don't need it. And there are some really cool alternatives there that are 100 percent vegan. Yeah, absolutely. Again, I <laughs> come from a family where meat intake was this thing you did. And I mean, my grandpa raised beef cattle. And so you ate beef. That's what you did. But in terms of substitutes, there's some really great and I won't even say substitutes. These are just their own entrees. And I think most of the time they actually taste way better than meat ever tasted. Give me your top five. All right. So top five, number one, beans and lentils. You can already guess I love them on the health side because they're high in fiber. They are very rich in protein and they are low in fat and cholesterol, well, free from cholesterol, low in fat loaded with vitamins and minerals, but you can use them anywhere. So anywhere you'd use ground beef, you can sub in, you know, lentils are a nice easy one, um, but you can do things like chili, you can do taco filling, you can put it in your marinara sauce over pasta, you can do a no meat loaf, you can even make like a two, I joke, two no salad (laughs) (laughs) with chickpeas. But again, they're just really versatile. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, made the wife, uh, what is it, the pumpkin lentil chili? I think that was on the 21-day Kickstarter menu. Yeah, that was out of this that world. That sounds really good. Oh, she was on board. Oh. Of course, I added kale. Yeah. <laughs> yes! I know, right? <laughs> Sorry. Cruciferous vegetables? Yeah. 
Uh, tofu, also tofu. made your list. Again, because it's really, it has particular benefits in terms of, you know, decreasing your risk of breast cancer. Um, again, note I don't say prevent because there's no, no magic bullet, but definitely decreases risk. And again, it's really versatile. So you can, it can be in the middle of a sandwich. You can, you know, brush some barbecue sauce on it, bake it up in the oven. You can scramble it like eggs. Like you can throw it in a stir fry. It works. You can put it in a smoothie. It works everywhere. Uh, 18 million kinds of mushrooms out there, but there's <laughs> one that stands above them all. Okay. In terms of meat substitutes, that's going to be portobello mushrooms because they are just exactly burger size. It's very convenient. And also mushrooms, most people think we have four different kinds of taste buds, sweet, sour, salty, bitter. We actually have five, and the fifth one's kind of recently discovered, and that is umami, which is also just fun to say. But it is a sort of meaty, savory flavor. You're giving me a look, but it's a real thing. And so, yes, animal proteins have it, but mushrooms also have it, as do tomatoes. Huh. So it's sort of a savory flavor. Ooh, mommy. Right? Ooh. My blown? Huh? Ooh, mommy. <laughs> uh, I've, I've not seen that in the store yet. It will not be a separate flavoring. It is just part of the mushroom. Ooh. Although soy sauce actually has a little bit of that flavor, too, which is one of the reasons it tastes so darn good. Huh. Also the salt. So, you, you know, yeah. use in moderation. There, there is that. <laughs> uh, Satan, that's a biggie. All right, yeah. Um, they probably could use a slightly better name for it. If anyone wants to rename that, that'd be great. Um, it's actually the protein <laughs> from wheat. I know, it's just a horrible I think name. about that. Like, I think about Dana Carvey's church lady, you know, <laughs> oh, from Satan. I haven't seen it. I haven't Satan? seen it. <laughs> so, so I'm anyway. sure somebody listening knows what I'm talking about. Right, okay. I am not very hip to the whole <clears throat> anything, really. So I will say that it is a great. It's sad but true. So it's a great chewy. It has a very almost disturbingly meat-like texture. So if you were to go somewhere like, I don't know, Whole Foods where you'd get like a vegan General Tso's chicken, Mm -hmm. they're usually making that out of seitan. So, and again, all that is is wheat gluten. So it's a great, you know, meaty substitute. But sidebar, it's also in all wheat products. So something like just bread or pasta that people think of as just carbs also have protein. Two slices of bread, just your standard loaf bread. Eight grams of protein. That's more than an egg. So just want to make sure that's in people's heads. Yeah. You can also, uh, I've, I've purchased this for stir fries especially. You can just get a package of um, seitan, you know, really unseasoned. Just, yeah. You know, and make it your it own. Home. Absolutely. Yeah. Other, other people make it themselves at their house. I'm not that skilled. You can do it. I'm not that I've done skilled it once. Yet. But yeah, it, it's a lot of, I would just buy it. Uh-huh. <laughs> Be honest. <laughs> Pay for the convenience. Uh, shocker. The last one on your top five here. Veggie, veggie. Speaking of convenience, so if you're transitioning or even if you just want the occasional sort of meat texture flavor without all the health problems and other issues with meat, um, veggie crumbles or veggie burgers are so easy. They're typically in the freezer section, although you can also find some in the fridge section in the produce aisle because plants. Um, They give you that meaty flavor. They work really nicely in spaghetti sauce. Veggie burgers are something that's great. In terms of the crumbles, I really like uh, they have the Gardein, Ultimate Beefless Ground, and the Beyond Meat Crumbles. Both of those are really nice. All right. So those are your top five meat alternatives. They are. Again, if you didn't get a chance to jot all those down, pcrm.org slash podcast. Now, Lee, uh, you have whipped up a delicious meaty dish for us today. I actually have to give a shout out to our newest dietitian, Allie Lunning, because she's actually the one who whipped it up. Ah. I know. She's amazing. She has a culinary background. I'm sure she'll be on at some point in the not-too-distant future. She's pretty great. But Allie's not here, and you want <laughs> I am. take the credit. Liz. I mean, yeah, I made that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, here we go. Um, we're going to come right back. We're going to go ahead and sample this. This is lentil and cauliflower rice taco filling. <laughs> That's a lot of words. It is. So lentil and cauliflower rice taco filling, which is actually a favorite at our house. No, yeah. no, no. There's a question mark on the end of that. So <laughs> lentil <laughs> and cauliflower rice taco <laughs> filling? All right. So stick I around. I put that there just to make yeah, it We're, <laughs> we're going to check out the filling right after this. Recipe time here on The Exam Room, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. The Meat Cancer Connection is the name of the episode, and of course, one of the most meaty and many people consider delicious dishes in the world is the taco. The taco. The taco, obviously made with meat, but not today. Correct. Today, the taco filling is made with, wait for it, a cauliflower, rice, and lentil mixture that is sautéed with with 
chili powder and garlic and onions and smoked paprika. It is just amazing and it comes together surprisingly quickly and it, it looks amazing as well your plating skills are on point why thank you yeah i must say i like the alternating salsa topping with the guacamole to- guacamole <laughs> the guacamole guacamole <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry um but uh but in all seriousness so you have these plated inside of little uh what are we yeah uh, so we use big scoops? tostitos on this just so that there's no really other good way to make tiny tacos mm. so i feel like this qualifies now, are you a hard taco girl or a soft taco girl? I do not discriminate when it comes to tacos. Hmm. There's a reason Taco Tuesdays exist. I see. Mm-hmm. I see. Mm-hmm. All right. So because uh, I am a little bit skittish of introducing nachos back into my diet, have I told you about my one nacho theory? I've heard you mention it. Yeah. So but what's the theory? And this is not a knock on anybody that wants to enjoy this. My theory is, so every failed diet I've had in the past, I can trace back to falling off the wagon. Right. The one diet that I went on and was most successful, I lost like 80 pounds, I thought that, you know, I had this licked. I could have one nacho. And that one nacho, man, that was was all she wrote. Out. Then it just came back with a vengeance all the way to 420. But that brought me to... My lean mean, 145. There you go. So anyway, uh, now we have uh, these beautiful mini tacos. Thank you. Not I have nachos. I have these with uh, <laughs> with pitos over here, so right. I'm going to be doing the pita thing. You got like a little soft taco thing going on there. A little little mini thing, little little <laughs> mini taco. Uh, but we have you, you've en- you've enlisted an official taste tester. We have we have Cindy here who is going to try these out and be our our taste tester extraordinaire. Now here's here's your only mission in life: take a bite, whether it's topped with salsa, whether it's topped with guacamole. Then I want your feedback. I want you to rate it on a scale of 1 to 10. Tell me about the delicate notes in there. <laughs> Your refined palate. Go to okay, town. Okay, I'm going to go for the one with the salsa on it first. All right. Oh, uh, you know that's... Science. Yeah, chew right into that mm. so people can hear it. All right, now back up. That just sounds kind of nasty. Mmm, <laughs> <laughs> okay. There's a very good smoky taste to it. The texture is spot on. Mmm. And I think I'm going to need a few more just to make sure. Surprise, surprise. Um, But I do like the salsa on top as well. Try one with the guac. Okay, we're going to go for one with the guac here. So, But uh, in all seriousness, I did have an opportunity to uh, try this before we started rolling. And um, just the the meaty filling on top of this pita, and it is out of this world. It is so incredibly tasty. Like I honestly think that you can probably serve this to somebody who had no idea that this is even a vegan dish. Yeah, this one goes over pretty well with omnivores. Yeah, crowd pleaser. Survey says with the guacamole. Mm, I would say that they are both amazing, and I would definitely serve them at my next gathering. Scale of 1 to 10. Mm, I'm going to give it a perfect 10. Oh, look at that. Look at that. And Lee gets all the credit. Yeah. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Okay. All right, uh, Lee, back up into the microphone. Um, all right, so you all right, so assume let's assume that you have bought a whole head of cauliflower though, just for illustration purposes. And again, you can also cook your own lentils if you are an overachiever. I mean, if you are motivated, you can also just buy canned lentils. So what you're gonna do is make your cauliflower, cut it into chunks, put it in a food processor, and just pulse it until it becomes like a rice. And then you are going to saute some onions, put the cauliflower in with the onions, saute all that. You don't even need oil. You can use a little splash of water if it sticks, but you may not need to. And then you're going to add all your spices and some garlic, ingo the lentils, and you're done. How much time would you estimate? Um, I think I'm trying to decide how long, again, because I like to buy the rice in advance. But I think if you do it, like, you know, start to finish with a whole head of cauliflower, we're looking at about an hour start to finish, but if you use, and that's cooking your lentils too, that's the trick. So if you don't cook the lentils, you buy those ready to go, and you buy the cauliflower rice, we're talking 30 minutes. Outstanding. Yeah, that's weeknight fast. Can do. Yeah. Yep. And it sounds like it's relatively easy to put together, all things considered. It is, and because it has those cabbage family vegetables and it has lentils in it, it's really great for reducing breast cancer risk too. There you go. That's the meat cancer connection. There and you go. Uh, before we wrap up, uh, real shout out who helped prepare this today? So this was Allie Lunning, our newest dietitian here at Barnard Medical Center, and she is fantastic and she has a culinary background. So we're looking forward to some really great. Um, meals from her. I'm, I'm very much looking forward <laughs> we to it. We can get her on board with that. We do 52 of these episodes every year, so uh, plenty of time to cook. 
will put her skills to good use. Perfect. All right, Lee Crosby, thank you very much for your time. You are listening to The Exam Room, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll, on Twitter, at Chuck Carroll, WLC, with two R's and two L's. Also follow the show, at PCRM, and while you're on Facebook, be sure to give us a like. Just search Physicians Committee. Today, all talking about the link between meat and cancer. Sitting across the table from me, from the Barnard Medical Center, Dr. Steve Niebuhr. How are you, Steve? Very well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing fair. I like that. You know, hopefully you're watching this on video. Like, you, you, yeah. you are a charismatic so, guy. I said Barnard Medical Center, and he's got this embroidered <laughs> on his sweatshirt, and he just holds it up yep. to the camera. Yep. Mean mugging. I yep. like that. Thank you. Thank Doctor you. with personality. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, let's, let's get serious here, because there is a serious link between meat and the risk of developing cancer. And specifically, we're going to talk about men. And I've got some stats here that we've pulled. And the link between prostate cancer and colorectal cancer, I mean, it is through the roof. The link to meat from each one. Right, right, right. Yeah, Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, you were just doing some math on the on the calculator there. And and the numbers are are just absurd. Um, I mean, we, we... we find out that one person dies of, pro- of prostate cancer every 20 minutes. One man dies of prostate cancer every 20 minutes. In the U.S. alone. In, in just in the U.S., yeah, not counting the rest of the world. And certainly if it's happening here, it's going on in the rest of the world as well. Um, but that, that blows my mind. If there was anything else that somebody was dying of every 20 minutes, we'd say, what, what's going on? You know. Um, and certainly there are other diseases and people are dying of other things. And we're not saying one is more important or less important or whatever than any of the other ones. Um, but since we're talking about this topic... Uh, to think that one man is dying every 20 minutes, like, let's do something. Like, come on, guys, let's go. What are we, what are we doing here? I mean, it's, it's so true. But yet here we are as men, you know, beat our chest, you know, yeah. we, we eat meat. Like, that's what we do. We right. kill it and we grill it. Right, you know? exactly. And, and that's yeah. the American mentality. Right. But you see what that leads to. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fighting back. I mean, you say we kill it and grill it, <laughs> but it, it's not done yet. It's, it's fighting back. Um, and, you know, funny you should mention the grilling because that's, that's one of the worst ways to cook it, you know? Yeah. Um, that, yeah. I mean, so I'm doing research for the segment and I was like, well, does it really matter how the meat is prepared? And yes, it absolutely does. Yeah. And and to phrase it carefully, there are more or less bad ways to cook it. Um, there's no real safe way to cook it. So you don't ever eliminate the cancer risk from it for a variety of reasons. But one of the worst ways and actually probably the worst way to cook it is actually grilling it. Um, when you grill it, you're exposing it to an open flame. So what I want you to do is think about, think back to high school class. I think most people have taken chemistry in high school. Um, when you did experiments, you didn't just throw things into the fire, right? You had, you, you most, heated. Most, most did it. Maybe you did. I don't know. Maybe you did. But so most things you put in the little beaker and you mix it around and you measure the temperature and you heat it slowly and then you mix it with something else. Now imagine if you took all those chemicals and you literally just threw them in a fire. What would happen? Like what, what would you get out of it? Kaboom. The, yeah. And the, the answer is I don't know what I would get out of it. You know, you're, you're just it's a totally uncontrolled uh, chemistry experiment yeah. where anything can form. And we see a similar thing, actually, with smoking. Um, the comparison is really just the process. So I'm comparing grilling meat to smoking, just that they're both exposing um, chemicals or uh, we can call it food because tobacco you technically can eat it. You'll die quickly if you eat it. But right. um, you're exposing tobacco or exposing meat to fire. Um, and that quick reaction with the fire creates a lot of chemicals that you may not necessarily want in your body, maybe even some chemicals we're not even aware of yet. Uh, Last I heard, there were something like over 400 different chemicals created when you smoke. Uh, So obviously not a good thing. Right. Um, And with grilling meat, you're creating these heterocyclic amines and polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, which roll off the tongue. Of course it does. Um, And those chemicals have definitely been linked to cancer. Uh, like, no question about it. If you consume those things, these chemicals have the ability to change your cells in such a way that the cell growth can become totally uncontrolled and can eventually lead to cancer. But that's not <clears throat> to say, then, that, uh, you know, broiling a meat or baking a meat is necessarily healthy either. It's maybe just the lesser of two evils. Yeah, I mean, it would be maybe less bad. And the reason for that is there's other things in the meat that can also lead to cancer. 
you made an interesting point to me before we started rolling is that, you know, if a patient comes to you, it's like, well, you know, if I, uh, if I don't grill it and I broil it instead, that, that lowers the risk. But you kind of view that, you know, as like, why even take it? Right, right. So I think in the medical field, we tend to be very risk averse. I mean, think of all the, the testing we order before somebody goes for surgery, right? In all likelihood, people are probably going to be fine during surgery. But if there's anything going on that we don't know about, that could affect the surgery. It could affect the patient's health. And so we want to know about it. And that's why we order a whole battery of tests. We send people for CAT scans and x-rays and stress tests and all those kinds of things before surgery. So the, the point is you want the risk to be as low as possible. And if you're doing anything that increases your risk, that's, that's not good for your health, right? It's not a guarantee. Like you're not saying you're going to eat meat and you're going to die of cancer, but it makes it more likely. So why would you want to make that more likely in your life? You'd want to make it less likely, right? So you yeah. want to take away things that are increasing your risk and you want to add things that decrease your risk. One of the things that really <clears throat> jumped out uh, and kind of brought this to light in mainstream America was this enormous World Health Organization yeah, yeah. Uh, proclamation that came out a couple of years ago. I mean, that was just groundbreaking. I remember I was uh, still working as a news reporter at the time, and I hadn't gone out on the street yet. I, I hadn't had my assignment. I'm sitting at the desk, and that tweet comes out yeah. from the WHO, and it's like, oh, my, what in the heck was that? Yeah, yeah. I, I still remember where I was when that happened. That that blew away a lot of us. We yeah. said, what, the World Health Organization just said that? Like yeah. the you know, one of the major, if not the major governing body for health in the whole world uh, said that processed meat is a carcinogen and leads to cancer. Uh, that was that was a major development. Now, you know, that's not just me, some doctor sitting here telling you that. That's the World Health Organization. And it's it's not just, uh, you know, some cancer. I mean, what is it, 30% of all cancers in Western countries and up to 20% in developing countries linked uh, to dietary factors. I mean, that's, that's just staggering. Yeah, and those are uh, possibly, you know, likely preventable deaths. <clears throat> Excuse me, it's all okay. stuck in there. But imagine, you know, think of think of 10 people you know. You know, anybody can think of 10 people, right? Sure. Um, now, three of those people may die of a death from cancer that is possibly maybe even likely preventable you mm -hmm. know wouldn't you want to do something if three people you know were going to die of cancer no doubt yeah of course right i think we all would so if it's something really as as simple maybe not easy but as simple as changing your diet you know i would certainly say hey just eat something differently to try to avoid this death and we see i mean this is this is an, uh, a major study throughout the world um, we see that changing diet does make a difference. You know, we've, we've seen studies through the World Health Organization. We've seen studies through the Adventists and all, all kinds of different groups. Yeah, I want to quantify this a little bit more because I'm a numbers guy, and I think that that grabs attention more than anything else. Uh, there was a study that shows meat eaters have approximately three times the risk of developing colon cancer. Yeah. Three times. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy, right? It's it's mind blowing. Yeah, because people don't think of it as a dangerous activity. Like you wouldn't think of it the same way you would think of smoking or I don't know, base jumping, right? Right. Um, but the the fact is, we talked before about the heterocyclic amines and the polycyclic uh, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. Um, but where are those coming into contact with your body? You know, you're eating it, so your mouth obviously it goes down your esophagus. It can increase risk of certain cancers of the esophagus, then your stomach and intestines. Um, and where does it? kind of hang out in one spot the longest is in the colon right before you have to go to the toilet and get rid of it right but so it's just kind of hanging out there really and it's in contact with the the cells of the colon so that's where it has the potential to do the the most harm really is because it's just it's just sitting there and there's not a lot of fiber in meat in fact there's zero fiber in meat right so there's not really anything encouraging it to to move along really i mean it will but there's it's not that not that same kind of feeling you get eating a whole meal of beans and lentils, you know? Correct. Correct. I wish Elvis knew that. I yeah, mean, right? <laughs> Let's make our time machine. Yeah, right? Um, so before we move on, I mean, I think that the number that would really stand out to a lot of people is also that these large studies that were conducted in England and Germany show that vegans and vegetarians 40% less likely to develop cancer yeah. than carnivores. Yeah, I mean, there's something to be said for that, right? You know, you think of uh, if you think of your body as a machine, and I like to use the car analogy, as you may have heard me do. Um, you, you 
if you have an expensive car, you're going to put the best stuff in it that you can, right? Nobody's going to go out and buy a Ferrari or a Maserati and put cheap gas in it and cheap oil and cheap stereo. You're going to put the best stuff you can um, in the car. And so for your body, you only get one, as far as I know, though, I don't know, maybe now they're doing body transplants, but, <laughs> uh, but really most of us just get one shot at it, I think. And so why are you going to put non-good stuff in it? Why are you going to put cheap food in it and food that's not good for you? You're going to, you should put the best food in it that you can. You know, I mean, they say you are what you eat to some extent. If you eat fast food and, and, and oily foods and fatty foods and things that are shown to cause cancer, that's not going to have a good result for you in the long run. But like we see with the vegetarians and the, and the vegans there, putting good, healthy fruits and vegetables in there in the body is going to lead to more favor- favorable results. Final question for yeah. you. If beef is what's for dinner, oh my is that the worst possible thing that's on your plate? It's not, it's, on, it's not on my plate. What? <laughs> you, I'm talking yeah, in the yeah. general sense. Uh, I mean, I could make some jokes about other things that would kill you a lot faster, <laughs> but, um, but no, it's not good. And, and the, the result of eating that builds up over time. So the more you eat, the more likely you are to end up with something uh, that that you don't want. So I would I'd keep it off the plate. Doctor Niebuhr, breaking it down, meat and cancer. You are you are just a treasure to talk to. <laughs> Thank sir. you, sir. Likewise. Thank you. Let's Thank do this you. again sometime. We will. Believe right. me, you're a good talker. Right. You're listening to the exam room, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Well, I hope you found today's program informative. And before we go, let me just share with you one quick tip. It's important to remember that it takes a long time for cancer to develop. We've learned that from cigarettes, that a person who quits smoking today is not out of the woods for another 10 years, 15 years, maybe even longer. It can take a long time. So when it comes to diet changes, we want to make sure we're changing our diet now to prevent cancer way down the road. And where that's most important is with children. Children are immortal, or so they think, so they act, and the foods that they are eating now can affect their risk of cancer down the road. When we look at colorectal cancer, it's actually increasing in young people because of all the bacon and sausage and hot dogs they're eating now. So now is the time to change for us and also for them. The investment will pay off hugely in the future. Thanks for being with us. 